Hello and welcome to Leaked Lunch, the fly on the wall podcast that brings you to the dining table. I'm Isabella Kaminska, and in this edition, I find myself in the Park Hyatt Hotel in Zurich, Switzerland, ordering in room service with economist and author Pippa Malgram. Pippa is probably best known for her pointed ability to unpack how statecraft and geopolitics interconnect with economics, drawing on factors most other economists overlook. Her latest book, Signals, How Everyday Signs Help Us Navigate the World's Turbulent Economy, helped introduce the world to the concept of shrinkflation, something most of us have since experienced directly in our day-to-day lives. Pippa also regularly draws on themes as far-reaching as space war, Arctic rivalry and fashion in her Substack writings. During our lunch, I asked Pippa about her time serving as a special economic advisor to George Bush Jr. in the White House, how she feels about crypto and what makes her think that we are already in World War III. We also discussed inflation, tactical space junk and Gosplan. The lunch was recorded on November 10th and the bill came to £76.09. I am in Zurich in a hotel in the Park Hyatt. We're, I'm here with Pippa Malgram. Hello. Um, hello, Pippa. We, this is a, a unique edition of Leaked Lunch because we're not in a restaurant. We've decided to do room service because <laughs> it's actually more of a brunch. It's about 11, well, actually it's nearly 12. Um, and we're here for a Chatham House meeting with, I don't know if we should say, because it's Chatham House. Well, we're here to meet with one of the biggest banks in the world. Yes. At the most senior level. Yes. To talk about the trickiest issues with a former prime minister of a major G7 country. And I think that's about all, all we, we can say. All we can say. <laughs> but as we were in the same place at the same time, I thought what an excellent opportunity to, to nab you for a quick leaked lunch before we go off to our little conference. So we're in my hotel room and we've just ordered some some room service. I'm going to get it. It's just come in. Um, here we go. So this is a very unique leaked lunch. Um, and we've really given us a little flower. Flowers. <laughs> Here we go, some bread. So, short and sweet, because we only have so much time, but I think sometimes that's a good, oh, they've only given us one piece of cutlery, because they thought it was just, they thought I was no, gonna. No, 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 I've got my okay, soup over here. Here we go. Ah. Yes, she being the expert how do at you, room service. How do you know, so the little trolley has a, Little, a little little oven, oven in it. <laughs> Goodness, I never I never do room service. So, well, there you go. This is what you find out when you have room service with Pippa Malcolm. And here's your I, I order room service all the time, but because it's I'm I'm writing while I'm on the road. Ah. So, Pippa, you've been on the road, like like me. I, I guess the, this is conference season. Because we came out of COVID, and there wasn't very much. Obviously, everything everything got suspended, and then um, and then now it was like a massive compensation. So there's been endless conferences, and I feel very discombobulated myself. Mm. Um, have you had a similar experience? Well, interestingly for me. Oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> this is the problem. <laughs> problem with room service. Hang on a minute. 
Oh. Sorry, I'm this. Please come in. That's great. We're look I think we're looking for a bottle opener. Yeah. A opener. Yes. Okay. Open that. Yeah, I think it's just as nice. Okay, we, we or the, the bar. Maybe it's at the bar. This is a very unique edition yes. of the, there we've got it. Yes. That's fine. It's okay? Yes. We've got the bottle open. Oh, it's perfect. Yes. 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 Okay. Right. Thank Have you. Nice Bye. Okay. There you go. Usually it's <laughs> bottle uh, opener in the bar. <laughs> usually it's me faffing around at ordering. Now we've pre-ordered everything, but it was about looking for a um so pippa's having a pumpkin soup and i'm having a chicken caesar salad i don't know what that is so i think yeah so what i was saying was um so my work went online during covid and uh i did a lot of zooms oh my goodness mm. and um actually that worked incredibly well i was super surprised how how fast the market flipped into virtual Oh yeah, and then since then, once it started to go live, there was just this incredible pent up demand. Oh. Um, and in my case, you know, my specialty is talking about the nexus between markets, geopolitics, and technology. Yes, and then that just happened to be a hot subject. So then suddenly the phone is off the hook and I literally am not touching down anything. No one knows where I am because even I don't know where I am. I'm moving so quickly at the moment. Yes, well, I, I, I was just saying, I feel like an aged pop star who, who doesn't know where they're grounded anymore. But um, for listeners who don't know you, Pippa, why don't you give a little intro to who you are and your background, especially because you obviously have some very interesting background. You used to work for the White House under George Bush. So yeah. tell us a little bit, A, what you were doing there, how you got in there. Sure. Well, uh, I did my PhD at the London School of Economics and then talked my way into the city in London. Um, it took a while because we were in a recession. It was the you know late 80s, early 90s. Mm. Um, but ultimately, I was hired by Bankers Trust, and it was funny because they, they were like, well, you're already 29 years old, <laughs> and you should be a managing director by now, mm. we can't hire you as a junior associate. But I, I managed to convince them to do it, and then I became managing director within six years. It was an incredible experience because bankers basically threw huge amounts of responsibility at you mm. and if you were still swimming you know with a grand piano on top of you they would be like great throw more at this person so i moved very quickly in the organization and ended up as the chief currency strategist mm. and in that role it, this is really my whole story and my my core competence <laughs> is that I can speak to both policymakers and people on trading floors. Mm. And it's a little bit, I always say it's like Klingon and Federation. <laughs> <laughs> I speak both languages. Mm. And I learned that most of my, well, all of my peers, even now, all of the market strategists, they spend their whole time crunching numbers and coming up with, um, you know, econometric models of things. But uh, this is not my strength. And I knew from growing up in politics in Washington, you know, my dad had been the chief trade negotiator for the United States. Yes, under. so your dad is Harold Malcolm. Yeah. And, and he so, has been, he was basically in the ear of many different, yeah, like, Kennedy, political figures. Johnson, Nixon, and Ford. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he'd been in charge of the missile trajectories during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Amazing. And was in the room during that. Um, and then 
since nothing bad happened in the end, the presence of well, what do you want to do as a reward? And uh, he said, I want to do trade. So he built the office of the US trade representative. So I grew up with this background, this, like I had a mentor, like an apprenticeship hmm. from a very early age. So when I got onto the trading floor, I realized the markets are moving with everything these policymakers say. Mm. And so better to get on a plane and go talk to them and understand what's their thought process. Mm. So they're more likely to do this than that. And mm -hmm. here are the reasons why. And then that made me um, very different from all the other market strategists who were presenting, you know, here's the inflation forecast and it's all numbers. And uh, that led to a lot of politicians started calling me up, asking me to come brief them also because my 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 sort of style is to speak about very complex things in very plain English, mm. almost as if you're talking to your grandmother. And it's not that you're dumbing it down; it's just you're simplifying it so any normal person can understand. Well, you know what they what say. The issue is they say if you don't if you if you can't explain something very simply, you don't really understand the subject. Well, I, I think there's some truth to that. So a lot of politicians um, had me come in to brief them, and still do to this day. Um, interestingly, it's always people who just realize that they might be head of state. <laughs> and then they're like, whoa, I should know something about this international economy thing. So I get the call and I went to brief, in particular, George W. Bush when he was the governor of Texas. And we hit it off immediately. Uh, and then he said, do you want to come be my advisor first during the campaign? And then he won. He said, do you want to come and be in charge of financial markets for the mm -hmm. president of the United States? And I'm like, you know, sometimes... Life sends invitations, and in the main, you should say yes when you're yeah. invited to things. So I said yes, and little did I know, during that period, we had uh, Enron and seven of the nine largest bankruptcies in American history all in one year. And then we had 9-11. And I had some background in strategic security, national security. So they went, you, you're in charge of, you know, terrorism risk to the economy. I'm like, okay. Oh my so God. the definition of what constitutes financial market issues widened enormously for me in that way. Oh, that's experience. fascinating. I didn't appreciate it because obviously 2001 was the moment they brought in all the Homeland Security, yes. Patriot Act um, I, yeah. legislation regarding transaction laundering, right? So that's, I negotiated the anti-money laundering provisions of the Patriot Act. Mm. And I learned as the White House negotiator, and I learned so much. By the way, you know how this game really works? The negotiations begin at about 1 a.m. And everyone's like, why are you starting at 1 a.m.? And it's because all the members of Congress keep their staff super busy until about dinner. Mm -hmm. And then the staff start to do their emails, and they have way too many emails to answer. They <laughs> even in 2001. Oh, even in 2001, they still had work to do, mm -hmm. right? And the only quiet time they had was when the boss left. Mm. So then when were they done? Not until after midnight. So you'd get the call that the negotiation's going to start about 1 a.m. It'll go till 3 or 4 in the morning. And then you get to go home for maybe a couple hours. And then you've got to be back to brief the president before the 7 a.m. meeting. And this is how the game works. And, and part of it is an erosion. When do you sleep? Well, you don't. And that's why you see sometimes cabinet ministers literally start falling off their chairs. This can't be good for society. Well, Having like, all these underslept people <laughs> in charge of the economy. <laughs> 
listen, Harvard Medical School literally should do a study of what physically happens to White House staff because you wouldn't let a pilot fly an aircraft with so little sleep. But you're letting these people pilot the future of the country. Yeah. It's crazy, literally. And then, by the way, can I add in another piece to this, which I learned Mm -hmm. is so fascinating. When you touch a pencil or a crayon or a pen to a piece of paper or Mm. you type on a keyboard, yeah. It becomes a presidential record. Ah, this is Hello. topical suddenly. <laughs> yes, it is. And so, no one wants to write anything down. Oh. Because all of that can be subpoenaed. Mm-hmm. And so now you have very, very tired people trying to remember complex conclusions that they've reached in a meeting but refusing to write it down. Why do we think accidents happen? <laughs> well, this is terrible. This is like it's a terrible kind of incentives. Oh, hello. It's, it's a nightmare. I'll, I'll add one more just for amusement. Another one is, and, and I'm all for transparency, but what's an interesting side effect of the Freedom of Information Act hmm. is it's reached the point where White House staff and political staff, if you go into a meeting with more than two people, that constitutes a meeting where, a, where counsel must be present. So the minute you have three people in the meeting, you have to have the lawyer, and that means it's all on the record, and so therefore there's no place anymore where you can have a quiet conversation about, let's cut a deal. And this is really bad, actually, for diplomacy, because often you have to be in a safe space where you can be seen to make... if everything's on the record, you can't show empathy for the other perspective. <laughs> because your own side will, like, you yeah, know, you can't suggest you. negotiable paths out because your own team will be mm. like, how could you have offered that? Mm. Yeah, the transparency actually inhibits the capacity to reach a deal. I mean, 100%. in the old days, the head of the Republican Party was um, Howard Baker, yeah. who was a, a wonderful, wonderful person. And the other, uh, the head of the Democrats was Bob Strauss, who was an equally wonderful person. Mm. And they were best friends, and they had a poker game uh, at one another's house. I think it was every Friday night. And that's where they hashed it all out. And the friendship between them, the trust between them, the recognition. I remember, you know, Howard Baker used to be like, well, Bob has to win on this issue. He can't, he can't not win this issue. So let's have him, let him have that. We're going to fight on this other one, and he can afford to give way on that one. Like, it was a really empathetic understanding yeah. of the role being played by the other person, that it wasn't personal, but they were representing a set of interests that had to be taken into consideration. Anyway, we're going a little off mm. track, but I'll, I'll just finish. So, so after that experience in the White House, um, I left actually to start my family, and I have now an absolutely fabulous, uh, almost 19-year-old daughter. Uh, who, as soon as I got some sleep, arrived in this world because <laughs> you're not going to get pregnant working in the West Wing. Mm. Not easily, anyway. Um, and then I went back in the markets and, uh, you know, I was just doing what I do, which is advising big institutional fund managers and corporations on what's happening on the global landscape they should be paying attention to. And they're usually so busy doing what they do all day long, they have no ability to raise their eyes and look up at the horizon. So. I always think my job is like sitting in the crow's nest of a big ship and everybody else is working hard on the deck as they should be and I just happen to have this position that I don't have to do all the deck work. I sit up there and I go, wait, I think there's something over here we should be paying attention to. And it's a really important position because I think these days in the modern economy, 
specialism is so intensive mm. and everyone because of the nature of echo chambers you end up with blinkered a very blinkered perspective on things uh, and those people can sit I mean Alphaville is very much in that mm. camp seeing things from different you know in between the lines but um, I don't think there's enough people out there doing that which is um, because it's a hard job, Pippa, because you have to be on top of so many different areas. Yeah, and what, it, what it, I think it really is about, it's pattern recognition across uh, a landscape of individual silos. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a lot of time talking to people in all these different silos uh, in the military strategic defense world. That's related to uh, some of the work I do, like I'm lecturing at Sandhurst, which is Britain's equivalent of West Point. Um, and I sometimes get, have the privilege of briefing the NATO generals, which it, it gives me a sense of what are they thinking? How are they thinking? But I also work but with in, startups. When, when you do that, I'm, I'm, this is a, you don't have to <laughs> expose too much, but okay. I'd be interested in what do you think their blind spots are? Like what is the most, Oh. what what is, without naming names, um, yeah. what was the most surprising area of ignorance that they had that you informed them on? Well, it's super interesting. I sat with a number of NATO generals about six weeks before the Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine, and I was strongly making the case that this was not a bluff, yeah. and that in fact we'd been in war between the superpowers in yeah. space for some years, uh -huh. and there was a very important incident that happened on January 6th this year, well before Ukraine began. Uh, in a tiny, tiny little island in the Arctic Circle called Svalbard, and someone had cut what is the fastest internet connection in the world. Mm. And you're like, why is this in the middle of the Arctic Circle? And the answer is because almost every commercial and even many of the military satellites and the International Space Station all connect to Earth at Svalbard. Mm. And so the cable was cut in two, two locations, so you couldn't say, oh, I hit a rock. No, somebody came along, cut it, and took about six and a half kilometers away. <laughs> so, like it was properly cut, takes you time to fix it. Now, why? Because it was sending a signal, we can cut off, I mean, let's face it, you can't have any uh, satellite-guided military systems if you don't have satellites. Mm -hmm. So I remember the chief of the British Defense Forces came out and said, under normal circumstances, this would be considered an act of war. But but my my theory is that most of our NATO generals, whether they're in Belgium or wherever, they're typically about 45 years old. And that means in their lifetime, mm. they have only fought like in Afghanistan, where they're up against yeah. a, a counterpart they think is unsophisticated and yeah. relatively easy to deal with, although that didn't prove to be true. But mm -hmm. nonetheless, the idea of facing a superpower with your most high-tech capabilities in a remote location in space, mm. that was not on their minds. No. And I think that... That's amazing to me because, I mean, again, this is the sort of... I think as a layperson on the outside, you expect these guys to be on the ball on all this. Well, let me come back to a previous mm -hmm. example to your question. Uh, I remember when, um, before the... Uh, before the crisis that led to the, do you remember the suicide that happened in Tunisia? There was a young vegetable seller in Tunisia 
who self-immolated and this kicked off the Arab Spring. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. Now before that I was briefing several um, Western militaries and I said look we've got a drought and we're gonna see the wheat price go through the roof because of what's happened in Australia and mm. Russia there was a drought. When the wheat price goes through the roof, mm. and we already have inflation building in the system anyway, mm-hmm. you're going to get social protests. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it's different if you have a rise in the corn price, then you'll see the pain in Mexico. Because every location has their food stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Pork price, that's China. Yeah. So they, I was arguing that we were about to see some, a really big wave of social unrest in the Middle East, mm-hmm. and the wheat price would be a kind of instigation against a backdrop that was already set to be mm-hmm. set to be on fire. And I remember one of the senior officers said to me, "No, no, 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 no. We know, for example, in Egypt, we know all the senior generals because they all came to the West to train, and we're all friends." And I was like, yeah, but you guys are all like 50 or 60. Those are not the people who are going to be in charge of what happens. Yeah. And next thing you know, Egypt totally flipped Mm -hmm. to definitely not the friends anymore. Yeah. And they were like, but food prices have nothing to do with us. And I said, they have everything to do with you. And now fast forward, President Putin is conducting a war that where the pain is being caused equally by food prices and yeah. oil prices as by tanks. Yeah. So basically we don't have any doctrine for this in the West is the issue. It's amazing, but you see, there was actually a Ministry of Economic Warfare during the war in, mm. in, in the UK. So we obviously knew this knowledge. It's like when you, it's like knowledge that you lose over time, right? Mm. So why, why oh, have we lost this knowledge? I know exactly yeah. why. I always say this, people laugh, but it's really true. Being in the world economy is exactly like being in a love affair. (laughs) You can tell everybody about the tulip crisis or that we had the warfare economics ministry, but no, they have to go actually fall in love with some person that's not right for them, no matter how much (laughs) you tell them. You can say this is not going to end well, but they they have to go do it themselves. They have to learn their own way. They have to learn their own lessons. This is very troubling. Because, it is, because um, we repeat stuff all the time. We continuously <laughs> make the same mistakes. It's a good yeah. pivot point maybe into crypto. I'm going to just get a drink. Hang on. Uh, I'm going to the... I wonder where the mini bar is. I guess it must be just over there, here. Just there, yeah. Um, <clears throat> hang on. But let not listen... Oh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> um, here we go. I slurp my soup. <laughs> yeah. Um, the... Um, the whole not listening to those who came before you um, it, it is a very childish ma- mindset, very teenager. But it's obviously, we're, today is November 10th, is it? Mm-hmm. And we're in the midst of the um, crypto Armageddon. Yes, we are. Um, and I feel that lesson is applicable there, there too. Um, but you're more... I guess, what's your pos- how would you describe your position of, on crypto? Because you're kind of crypto curious, I would say. Oh, that's a beautiful way to put yeah. it, actually. Very much so. I think this is like the dot-com bubble burst period when a whole lot of bad business models blew up, but the fundamental technology of the internet was just starting. Mm-hmm. So uh, people thought the internet was dead at the time. 
but it was it was completely nascent and then really came to life. I think this is similar. Some really bad business models are blowing up. Yeah. But the fractionalization of finance, tokenization as a mechanism, the use of smart contracts. I, I, this is the beginning of a radical change, and I think it will have some very positive consequences. One, by the way, just to be very granular, I think for 400 years. When bright people come together to create value and wealth, they have incorporated. They've used the yeah. East India Company model, yeah. And then they list, they issue shares, and then they list on a stock exchange. Now they're more and more using smart contracts, where they don't have any jurisdiction anywhere. They'll never issue shares. They'll issue tokens. And they can bring together people from all over the world, not just people who happen to live in your neighborhood where mm -hmm. you have a headquarters anymore. Which, by the way, I think is so antiquated. Our grandchildren will be like, that's so cute. You only created businesses with people who happen to live like in the same radius as you. Mm. Now you can work with anybody anywhere. And um, I think it may be the end of the East India Company model. I was speaking to the International Organization of Stock Exchanges recently about this, and it hadn't even occurred to them that in future the best deals might never come to the stock market. The question is, will the regulatory system allow for it? Because now I think, I haven't read the details, but there's a case related to something called LBRY going through, and um, I really don't know the details, but I was told yesterday now, this could set a very important precedent in terms of the Howey test. Um, and if if this is judged as security, then Ethereum, everything, might yeah. end up being seen as a security, in which case the regulatory, yes. uh, Gary Gensler, and everybody's going to come come in for this stuff. And if it loses, if it, if it is to be judged as security, I think that's going to change the dynamic quite, quite extremely. What do you think? I do think this is right. So my argument has been... Governments are leaning in the direction of having a framework for crypto, mm. but what it will involve is governments introducing CBDC, central bank, um, uh, CBDC, digital, digital, currency. Cur yeah. digital currency, and uh, then the, basically it's going to be one line. Either you comply with our rules or we'll arrest you. What that means is no more anonymity and you must declare what you have. And everybody in the crypto world thinks the value of what they are doing in crypto is from the anonymity yeah. and the ability to not have to declare it. Yeah. But I've always said this is, this is crazy because you think you can type into your iPhone your, your code, your password, and you don't think anyone else knows what it is? Are you really, seriously, you don't <laughs> think the government can keep total track of everything you're doing on your phone? Well, and now with CBDC, you know how it's going to arrive. The Chinese showed us. You're going to wake up one morning and you're going to have a message on your phone. It's going to say, there's a huge pile of cash. We'll call it $1,000, which for most people is yeah, a lot yeah. of money. $1,000, register here. And it's just for you and you can do whatever you want with it. Yeah. You're going to register. And now your phone, everything on your phone, government has access to. It's like it's like Pegasus comes in. It's a deal of the devil. Well, <laughs> you sign here well, and you'll get well, your... Well, is it? You know, if you have... Uh, we get into do you have anything to hide stuff. But 
the the view of governments is there you, you should have nothing on your phone that you're hiding, right? There shouldn't be anything. So well, you, Hunter Biden might disagree. Well, but then he should have been hiding that because <laughs> it was illegal. But okay. <laughs> that's the point. It's a wow. it's a legal enforcement mechanism. So bottom line is, sure, they'll say no problem. You can have Bitcoin, but it can't be anonymous, mm. and you have to declare it. So all the Bitcoiners are like, no, 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 this isn't the deal. Well, yeah, it is because government. This is the power of the sovereign. So I think the crypto community is still in denial about. But there is. I don't this. really understand the use case. If well, this is why government always says they don't either. Mm. Yeah. Welcome. Well, I think well, there, there is a use case, and then there will be no. cryptos. They're just their purpose isn't to evade government rules. Well. That's, so then the question is, what problem is it solving, other than mm. empowering the government more and more? Yeah, but it will, that's the point. So who's going to win that fight? My bet is on governments are going to win that fight. Look at how they already do it, right? Like, if you have a crypto and a account with, say, Citigroup, mm. Bank of America, already you're getting letters saying, we see that you own crypto assets so we're closing your bank account yeah that's already begun yeah and you're like how did they know yeah well because <laughs> but that's only if you if you use any of the kind of regulated um, wallet services like if you are if you have a if you're smart enough to know how to own your crypto in a properly decentralized way mm -hmm. you can I mean it's very hard for them to figure it out well is it that's what I'm saying. I don't think it's going to be that hard once they, the government really focuses their attention on this. So, so the fundamental premise of the crypto market, which is we're in a pirate utopia, free mm. from having to deal with any of these higher authorities, was actually never true. And I think yeah, it's no, going to be less true in future. And But the, the tokenization of assets, like for example, if you want to buy, I haven't looked lately, what is the share price of Apple, but mm -hmm. uh, if you want to buy one share of Apple, it's a fair whack of change. Yeah. Your average person, your shopkeeper, can't afford to even buy a single share. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people want to buy Apple. They mm -hmm. want to own it. They use it every day. So in a tokenized world, could you say, I'd like to buy $100 worth of Apple? Yeah. And is that good for the economy? Yeah, because why now do we have all of the returns from an Apple going to private equity, which is principally what happens, and goes to pension funds, but regular people can't participate well, in the Well, companies like Apple could do stock splits to help. Um, yeah, but they don't. They buy their shares back. I yeah. mean, not Apple in particular, but most companies are buying their shares back. Mm. They're not sharing it. So... That creates this awful situation where a few people get the game of how you do stocks and most people like dream about it and can't get in there. Yeah, and that's not good for democracy. I think no. I um I wrote a piece about how, you know, the concentration of ownership basically amongst I, I guess it's Vanguard and BlackRock that yeah. end up owning everything. Yeah. Um, and then the proxy voting, you, you basically waive your right to, to actually have any influence over the companies that you want to own. Yeah. Um, so you have this passive ownership that isn't very 
accountable and then the people who are using your your economic power to influence the companies are doing it according to their own prerogatives which might not match your um your own sentiments so yeah. i agree but would tokenizing actually help because i don't think you could you'd, you'd have to share the voting right amongst mm. <laughs> amongst have it you know what a horrifying thought you yeah. have to give your shareholders a voice mm. oh my god <laughs> yeah but if, if it's like i own one tenth of an apple share yeah then to vote i would have to create consensus amongst the smart other smart contracts mm. this is where smart contracts start to come into play but i think there's an even bigger this is you're absolutely right this is a massive issue for society there's an even bigger one the pension funds of major economies basically can't invest in startups. Mm. One, because they perceive it to be too risky with yeah. a 95% failure rate in the mm. best cases. One, because they're so small, it, it's like a lot of effort for putting yeah. a tiny bit of money to work so it doesn't move the needle enough. And yet, it's companies with fewer than 50 employees that generate two-thirds of the net new jobs yeah. And almost all of the innovation now is coming from the startup space. So we have this strange situation That's where the biggest pools of capital cannot back the one part of society that generates the innovation and the jobs. That is a very good point. So you end up, the capital ends up flowing into entrenched, maybe um, less innovative companies that yeah. are suffering from, you know, the burden of being big. <laughs> Um, which is what happens to a lot of companies yeah. once you get to a certain size, sure. internal bureaucracies, you know, it's the whole IBM in versus Skunkworks yep. kind of um, concept. It's, yeah, no, this is a re really good point. So how, so you think through tokenization there would be a m way for, for pension funds to sprinkle some of that capital into small and medium sized players? I do, I think, and I think it really needs to happen if we want to grow again. Um, and it has to be capital that is willing to do what private equity currently does, which is accept that only one will be a success and 95% yeah. will fail. And that actually, not only is that okay, but the lessons learned from the failures are very valuable mm. for reducing the failure rate in future, right? You're creating skill sets amongst the public even when they fail. So, yeah, I think we have to get to that point and we've got a real problem if we don't. There has to be a change in mindset about ambition because I th my perception is that young people all want to create the next unicorn. It's yes. all like hyper growth. But this isn't necessarily good for the economy, like a world of massive unicorns and monopolies. Yes. Why are we not teaching entrepreneurs to aim a little bit lower but for consistent profitability and sustainable kind of value add to the economy well, <laughs> so here's my theories on this uh -huh. first of all um you know my last two books were on leadership mm -hmm. and the question that i and my co-author chris lewis were asking is why are we having so many leadership failures mm. and they're happening in every institution in every part of society from the catholic church to startups so we looked at it we started to realize one of the things is um i'm going to use a word that is that the medical community does not recognize but everyone in financial markets does mm. is psychopaths <laughs> <laughs> and so two words size matters mm. and what we've done is created a society built on the concept of scaling Mm. Scaling is success. 
Well, as institutions become bigger, it becomes more stressful to manage them. And one of the things about psychopaths is that their heart rate falls when they're under pressure. <laughs> it literally yeah. it falls when they're under pressure. So this is why they make great surgeons. They make great firefighters. They're really good at being special ops officers. They are, it can be effective in banking and finance and everybody who's worked in banking and yeah. finance can identify immediately. If you ask which ones are in the room, everybody yeah. knows which ones they are. But how, like, so I remember us sitting in meetings with Alan Greenspan and he, he used to say the issue is not that the banks are too big to fail, it's that they're too big to manage. Yeah. They're too big to save. Does Jamie Dimon really know what is happening in every corner of the balance sheet of that bank? Now, I'm not, by the way, to be clear, I'm not saying Jamie Dimon's a psychopath, <laughs> but I bet his heart rate falls under pressure. Like, he, he thrives and. So we, we live in a world where we keep thinking bigger is better. I call it the superlative yes. economy. 100%. But actually, you're right. We would be better off with a lot of smaller enterprises that were more sustainable and less volatile. And if they get into trouble, don't require the government to bail them out. Yeah. And that's why when I'm talking to entrepreneurs, it's hilarious. They always say to me, they're like, okay, I've got this amazing business and it makes a ton of money. And, you know, we've really grown and now I want to sell it. I'm like, great, to do what? Well, I want to take the cash. Okay, to do what? To give it to a fund manager. I'm like, okay, but the fund manager is looking for you. The, the fund manager is yeah, trying to find exactly. you to give you the money because you know how, how to, to make, make, make work, right? <laughs> and so, and by the way, most of the fund managers will fail. So now you're going to give your money to a fund manager who's trying to find you but can't find you and so they lose money. Wouldn't you rather just keep running yeah. this business with your eyes closed? Yeah. And they all like, what? I never, wait. But it seems so obvious. I never thought of that. Mm. Yeah. But this whole exit mentality, I yeah. think it's the wrong reason to get into business. Like, you know, now that I'm an entrepreneur, yeah. I, um, you know, my objective is to create a valuable business that is sustainable, makes, covers its, you know, its liabilities and hopefully makes a bit of money for a small amount of people but i don't have to be the new york times i don't have to be the new ft i think you know i think this ridiculous over ambition is, is sometimes bad better to have a small but very effective business yeah, but then this here's the thing uh, now that i've worked with a lot of startups the investors are like that's very nice but i'm not going to financially back that because what i'm yes. looking for is it's this worth. 10x to 100x a thousand X like these crazy numbers and so that's another reason why I've argued for a long time that private is the new public and getting private financing for businesses makes much more sense because you can find investors who will align with your with those goals yeah. in the public markets no way public markets if you're going for a, an IPO this this attitude you've described is not gonna fly do you think inflation is going to change everything? Because it seems to me we have to, by definition, pivot into profitability for profitability first. Yeah. Growth is a you know by the by, because unless you're profitable in an inflationary environment, I mean this is it, it's just not cost efficient yeah. in terms of the cost of financing. So I've described it a little differently. I've been writing about this on my Substack column um, when. When the government's giving you free money yeah. and record low interest rates, mm. 
you're supposed to take it and put it on the riskiest thing you can find mm -hmm. because it's free, right? Yeah, you yeah. might as well take big bets. So in that world, you're looking for unicorns. Mm -hmm. Great. When they take the money away and now they charge you mm. to utilize money, you're looking for workhorses. Yeah. And a workhorse is a business that generates a genuine unimpaired cash flow. Mm -hmm. It's a real thing. Yeah. And I think the market is shifting now because of the monetary policy environment. I, I think inflation is a further additive that speeds up this transition because this is like back to love affairs. We've talked about people about inflation and they're like, well, I don't know what that is. They never experienced it. I know. They have to go experience it for themselves. And <laughs> But let's, let's talk about inflation because I think you were one of the people who saw this coming mm -hmm. um, and there was so much resistance oh, yeah. in terms of anyone projecting inflation. Um, why do you think people were so reluctant to take it seriously? Well, so all I can tell you is having been in that inner circle and I was, I was part of what they call the plus, the plus one, mm -hmm. which is when you're sitting there in the White House and it's um, Alan Greenspan and his plus one was Roger Ferguson, the vice chairman of the Fed. Um, there was the Secretary of the Treasury, and he had a plus one, and I was working for Larry Lindsay as the head of the National Economic Council, I was the plus one. So these are small rooms with very senior people. And I listened to them, and I realized, you know what, when we have a problem next, they are going to go for a bailout option. And implicitly what it means is they've already decided that inflation is the answer. Mm -hmm. But if you were to say, <laughs> I'm sorry, did you guys just say you're going to pursue options A, B, and C, and you know that that's inflationary, right? If you go to record low interest rates and you do free cash, that the purpose of that is to create inflation. Oh, no, 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 no. We would never do that. No, absolutely not. But are they lying to themselves or just... I, I realize oh. it, what it is, it's a, it was a, and you could see it more recently, and I think this is what's happened to, to Janet Yellen as well, who's a very brilliant person. They genuinely believe they could control the amount, that they could just have a little inflation. And I remember Paul Volcker, I didn't overlap with him very much, my dad worked with him, but I was in a room with him a number of times, and I remember... He's like, you can't have a little inflation. You create this thing and it's a monster. <laughs> You're poking the, the dragon. It's like, like it's gonna, the yeah. genie, you know, yeah. you rub the lamp, yeah. be careful what you wish for. Mm -hmm. So they almost had like, a, almost, I hate to say it, but and you've written so much and talked so much about, you know, the Soviet Union and Goss Plan. And yeah. They literally were like, there's like this Same. board with temperature dials and we can just turn down the temperature dial on inflation when we're ready. It's the same hubris. No, yeah. you can't do it. It's hubris. Yeah. And so even now they would be horrified. And I'm sure they are horrified by what's happening with inflation. Word is from inside the Fed that um, Chairman Powell is angry with the staff for misleading him for telling him that it would be temporary. And you're like, really? <laughs> you're gonna blame the staff? No, that's it's ridiculous. So that's ridiculous. And also, I mean, he's he's the chairman of the, I mean, come on. Come on. Yeah. But again, you know, I Wouldn't have, happen in Japan. <laughs> I have talked to these guys uh, over the years, and literally when you say, seriously, record low interest rates and free money on a scale that we've never seen in history, and 
And then they'll give you justifications. And anyway, the other thing. Well, I think one of the things is that when we were doing QE and everyone was predicting, oh, it's inflationary and it never happened. But logically, it was always going to happen on the exit point. It was always going to be that, like, and that's where we are now. When you start to exit, that's when it all becomes Uh problematic because you've lost your ability to control the kind of the market. You know what? Here's the best example of what it's like Mm -hmm. a ketchup bottle. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Yeah. You slam yeah. that thing with your fist and then nothing happens. Nothing and happens and then it's sports. everywhere and you cannot put it back in the box. I like that. You need to do a That's blog. Have you done a blog post? I haven't, but I need you, to do you one. You do need to do the ketchup, ketchup, so the ketchup bo- bottle kiwi problem. Yeah. <laughs> so bottom line, what I saw happening, I wrote, as you know, my book Signals in uh, 2017, 2016-17. And I said, we have now absolutely baked it in we are going to have inflation this is going to give rise to uh, populism Mm -hmm. and we are going to have social unrest and this is going to be a contributing factor to causing geopolitics to roar back to life Mm -hmm. now people at the time were like this is just stupid because Mm -hmm. inflation is dead i remember people kept saying inflation is dead i'm like you know that when you say something is dead that is definitely not dead. like it's a vampire peak, peak hubris peak hubris but the thing is, we went from roughly a 0% inflation rate, mm-hmm. um, particularly after the financial crisis, to 2%. Mm-hmm. And everybody goes, well, that's not inflation because that's, that's it's our still, target that's our target objective. <laughs> and you go, let's go talk to a poor family about what happened to them. Yeah. You go from 0 to 2%, that's a massive hit to the to the well, spending capability 100 percent. i think and and that the, the elite sort of elements they i think have overlooked the sensitivity of large numbers versus small numbers so yes. with with the current context that move is very impactful because everyone is operating at a much higher valuation so houses are not worth two hundred thousand pounds anymore they're worth a million, right? right? And so the rate differentials are much more impactful yeah. by definition. It's like a leverage ratio, yeah. actually. And I would go even deeper. Like we've seen that you know this explosion in obesity amongst the mm. poor, particularly in America. Why? Well, because when inflation starts, protein becomes mm. expensive, and the only cheaper calories are emptier calories. So as people start to move into lower grade food to compensate for inflation, they get fat. So it's a symptom, it's a signal that inflation is beginning, right? Sadly, that means it's very symptomatic in my house. <laughs> but hopefully we can now that now that I'm not on the road we can we can nip that in the butt. But um but no this is very so, true. Yeah. That's one part of it. I think the second thing is um, uh, by the way, the change in an asset allocation for a pension fund, when you go from 0% to 2%, that's yeah, massive yeah. as well. So this whole thing that, oh, this And imagine this the economies where, where you had negative rates. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So this whole, it doesn't matter, doesn't wash. Yeah, no. Then when we are at 2%, mm-hmm. now it starts ticking up. And remember we were heading to the U.S. having three and a half prints mm. and people were like no 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 it's okay we can go a little above for yeah, a while we because we were under for so long yeah. we're just catching up yeah but you're still <laughs> now imposing the pain yeah. and it's like an acid that's eroding the value of money so now anybody who's got savings in the bank is like i've got to get into something real because i'm getting killed by owning cash so you're creating activities in the economy that wouldn't have happened otherwise 
And that is exactly why President Putin and President Xi, I think, very carefully decided when to launch this mm -hmm. attack on the West. They chose the moment that inflation was really solidly getting a foothold. And then watch what happens when we give you a supply side problem in food and energy and bang. This is, again, we don't have any doctrine for this in the West, but well, that's, that's what happened. Putin obviously, I think, does remember what that's like. He does. Because that's basically what happened to Russia. And we'll mm -hmm. get into, because I want to talk more about Gosplan. Yeah. But um, interesting to me that you referenced him in conjunction with Xi, because officially he hasn't launched any attacks. So where do you see, I mean, are we... How can I put this? Well, I'll just put it bluntly. Do you think World War Three is engaged right now, or do you think it isn't? Like, where are we? So I wrote a piece on October 29th, 2021, mm -hmm. and I said, we're already in World War Three, And people were like, you are completely insane. Like, there's no, like, mm -hmm. what? Mm-hmm. But I laid out the case also that World War III is very different from World War I and World War II, and perhaps better because it is more about a technology war. Mm -hmm. And that war has been occurring in space. Mm -hmm. um, and why? Because whoever has the highest altitudes, highest orbits, has command over what happens on Earth. Mm -hmm. It's really simple. It's air power taken to the umpteenth degree. Mm -hmm. And so we've seen all these incidents in space, like when the Russians blew up their own satellite to create a massive debris field that would basically wipe out the American satellites. When did that, that happen? That would, oh, well, it's happened a couple of times, actually. They're called anti-satellite tests. And it creates what they call the Kessler effect, which has been described as razor blades in a washing machine. And we have that now in space. And this is one reason why the superpowers are now talking about, uh, the US certainly just has announced they're doing Wait, so no there more anti-satellite tests. De debris that, so if you are putting up rockets into space you might run into this oh, shrapnel and 100%. get like punctured in fact the fda i think it's the fda just came out with an announcement that all satellite companies in the u.s now have to clean up any debris they put into space within five years but it used what, to be like what is 15. the logic of doing these like, well it's to deny uh, denial of use it's deny you the ability to operate in that orbit uh -huh. so that started <clears> happening <throat> then another thing was um the chinese developed uh, what america already has which are satellites with robotic arms and the ability to literally go up to another satellite grab it and hurl it into outer space <laughs> oh my gosh i mean it's it's out of the james bond film but it's real and it's, it's real techno it's moonraker yeah, yeah so um all of these things were about this battle for who supremacy. has supremacy yeah. in space so that had already been going on for a while, but I think the mistake our side made was we thought because there are no journalists in space and it's all classified, that this doesn't need to be brought to the attention of the public. Mm. But then the gap between what the public knows and the fight that's happening became too wide mm. to contain anymore, especially after the Svalbard incident. Mm -hmm. And then Putin basically brought the battle to Earth as well. Mm. And so Ukraine is... Earth as that's where you know okay I'll show you on the ground but that's also about G uh, okay let me give you my two 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 guys in a bar analogy mm -hmm. here so G and Putin are in a bar yeah 
And Putin says, I hate these Americans. I just want to throw a punch. Let's, I just, let's beat them up. And Xi says, you should do that. And so Putin does. And then a big brawl happens. And then they go back to Xi and they're like, what do you think? And he's like, hey, I just met the guy, right? Like, you know, he's on a tear. But what really happened is President Xi used Putin's aggressiveness to test our reaction times, how do we respond? To show Where's, our hand. To show our hand, 100%. And he's how, just watching, he's learning, just wa learning, totally. Yeah. So yeah. this is very important. It's very Sun Tzu. It's just very Sun Tzu. Yeah. It's very clever. That's how the Chinese operate. I have so to they, say. They, they send out, they encourage their attack dog just yeah. to see. Yeah, go, go bite the guy's ankle. And, and let's see, see what how happens. he reacts and we will learn and adapt completely, accordingly. Completely. Yeah. So I do think we're in World War III, but, and, and I say it also because the number of nations involved is so big yeah, as yeah. well. So for example, the media, and you, you tell me, I mean, you've been in the media a long time. I'm like, why isn't the media reporting all the stories other than Ukraine? And they say to me, it's the old rule, if it bleeds, it leads. Right, you gotta have a dead human for it to be a human mm. interest story. Yeah. So Ukraine gets all the oxygen. Yeah. But Svalbard, where you're talking about satellites and internet cable cuts, there's no dead person, therefore it's not really a story. And I see this happen for Putin. The war goes from the Arctic, which he's described as the mecca of resources, and China has a deep, profound interest in working with China on controlling the Arctic for protein, for raw materials, yeah. lots of things but it goes all the way to the southern tip of Africa. So if you look at a map of Africa, you can see Russia already is totally controlling 100%. the oil fields in Libya, yeah. what's going on in Algeria, this whole fighting in the Sahel is mm. all Russian backed. Morocco is like the last stand that's aligned with the West. Um, the Sudanese just gave the Russians a military port on the Red Sea. They have this deep involvement in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which is all about bringing gold in particular back to Russia. That's why the Russians have done all these deals and the Chinese with Turkey. And then further down, Mozambique, Madagascar. And then you look at a map of where are American special forces mm. in Africa. And it's literally like a checkerboard. We have some countries, they have other countries, and we're facing off in Africa. But again, this is like, so nobody notices. So I've described it as we're in a hot war in cold places, space, the Arctic, and we're in a cold war in hot places, which is Africa, and we're also in it in the Pacific with all of the China well, and the US buying for islands to build new military bases on and to have relationships with. I mean, this is a little bit like World War II in the sense that the attention was always on the hot side of it. But there was so much more going on in World War II on, on on a, you know, that's why it was World War II, this stuff happening in Africa that mm. doesn't get the historical attention that it should. But um, now this is very interesting to me. And um, do you think then the people, is, is there, for me, being a media practitioner, you, you asked why is this the case? Mm. I think it's not just that it bleeds, if it bleeds, it leads. I think there's only, it's, it's a reflection of our readership. Our readership, there are very few people who can join all these dots. It's mm. like beyond the scope of most people to really be an expert in all these different areas. So if you say something like, we're in World War Three, look at the big picture, 
people will naturally be a bit reluctant mm. and and hey what you're talking about that's insane but um i think it's it's a lack of skill set in 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 the average pop like in the average reader because everyone is so specialized is the role of them i mean the editor used to be the person who yeah. would then say you need to look at this and connect these dots yeah now i suppose they are they rely on uh, opinions as in editorial page but you tell me, how does the FT choose who gets to write for their editorial page? They pick all the people who aren't going to say this sort of thing. Yeah, and I mean, who knows? I I suspect there's a part of the organization that doesn't want to be alarmist. Yes. Um, maybe it's, I mean, who knows who's leaning on them? <laughs> I don't, I, I never operated at the very top, top levels, but... I think what's interesting is now that we're seeing all the change in power at places like Twitter and the revelation that there were infil like spies infil infiltrating of all flavors, like there were Chinese spies, I think, Russian spies possibly, um, our own own people. No <laughs> really? Yeah. So <laughs> it shows you that the uh, like this is this is one of those things people will probably <laughs> go, "You're crazy," but. For me, the front line is very much on the information oh, space. Oh, absolutely. And that makes journalists really the combatants in the war, right? Well, so, absolutely. And so 100%. he who controls the message controls the morale and the um, the perspective. But what I, if mm. it is true that we are tech, engaged in World War Three, I think that people would be more understanding about why say certain topics are taboo or there's censorship going on mm. if 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 the powers that be were just a bit transparent with the population because i think during world war ii we had censorship in fact brendan bracken the yes. founder of the ft was the minister of information yeah. <laughs> and um famously worked with george orwell nonetheless mm -hmm. and some people say he was the inspiration for big brother yes. um bb but i think if you are um, going to be positioning censorship into the it, we I understand why I mean it makes t total sense in that in that sense if we are in World War three but you need to be transparent with the people well, well, so that's at the moment there is no transparency which means people think our democratic traditions are being what's happening they think we are now under autocratic influence when it might be justifiable right yeah, I hear you. Well, again, the main thing is let's start with events are occurring that are materially important. Like just in the last week and a half, we've had, uh, again, internet cables being cut, the main Marseille cable. Mm. But because most people don't understand why that's that important. Mm. So I keep trying to explain. Yeah, they don't. It's like it's true. no more Uber Eats if GPS doesn't work. Oh, and yeah, then they go, oh, okay, well, well that, now that, I really now care. I, now okay. I <laughs> you know, um, very little of our, of our um, Wi-Fi is satellite-based so far. It's going to be much more in the future. But, but certainly the subsea cables are very important. And I guess because we have this capacity to repair them quickly, people think it's no big deal. But it is. Well, I think most people don't even know huge. that the internet needs cables. I think most people they, just they think, think it's just in the comes in the air. Yeah, I know. I, <laughs> no, I don't think they realize. Well, electricity is just in the plug. I know. <laughs> yeah. So, so if we really start to analyze, like what is happening out there, what we see is 
Um, look, for example, here's an interesting signal. Just a few weeks ago, the head of CENTCOM, Central Command for the United States, who is an army general, yeah. they announced that he is physically aboard a very powerful U.S. nuclear submarine in the Gulf. So I immediately call my friends in the military. I say, is it normal to have an army guy on a Navy vessel? Mm. Like, when's the last time we've seen that? And they're like, never. Hunt for Red October. This is, no. <laughs> yeah, this is not normal. So what's the, why, why? Why? Because we have a threat of a nuclear event. Mm -hmm. We have a superpower threatening to use nukes. And how is the U.S. responding and NATO responding? They're moving nuclear submarines mm. into the region where they have proximity. And that has to be coordinated by CENTCOM. So, that's so now you have an army guy yeah, on a Navy given. vessel. Right, right. Right. It's a hell of a signal. But everybody missed it because the press barely even reported that it occurred. It's really... But uh, it's very, you know, distraction, distraction here. We'll focus on this. And then this is why, you know, that's the point of the blind spot yes. is to look at these things that everyone is I, I almost feel like if everyone is looking here you've got to look at the other areas mm. because that's probably much more important especially for investors especially if you want to navigate these waters and protect your yes. money because yes. if, if you're just following the mainstream you're, you're going to be you're going to be behind well can, can I just throw in uh -huh. then a couple positive things because because you know if you start we'll talking World War 3 <laughs> then everybody's like oh my god then you know but I have to say the positive news about all this is, number one, in history, whenever we get close to a nuclear event with the superpowers, it doesn't actually happen. Mm -hmm. And again, back to my dad who was in the room during those 10 days of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he oh, said yeah. at one point we got down to about four hours. We were sure we were four hours away oh, my God. from an actual nuke being launched. And he said, what's amazing is human beings under that pressure, no one can do it. Not the Russians, not the Americans, because no one can bring themselves to never see their loved ones again, to do that to the planet. And so human survival instinct takes over. And so I think this is going to go the same way as everything that's happened since um, since the Trinity test, which is we won't have a nuclear exchange. Well, a lot of people are saying, oh, but Putin might have pancreatic cancer or whatever. Yeah, yeah, He's a yeah. dead man walking and therefore who, who, you know, he hasn't got the existential issue, right? But he does have children, right? So theoretically, he wouldn't want to well, kill them. <laughs> well, yeah, well, theoretically, um, but I don't know. That, I, I have to say I've been very interested in Alexander Dugan, mm. who is often described as Putin's brain, yeah. who's heavily into the occult. Oh, is he? Is yeah, he definitely. Okay. And if you read his stuff... Well, he looks Rasputin-esque. He is Rasputin-esque. Yeah. And um, he, his argument is basically that it's okay if you destroy the world now because the afterlife will be Russian and Putin will be in charge of it. The afterlife will yeah. be Russian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know Russia that has element. a very strong, very deep tradition of the of the occult of a belief in you know witches and and mystics and psychics yeah. and that's that's well he's definitely tapping into a, a sort of myth based he um, is. 
popular sentiment because I, what I've been fascinated with is the whole myth of Moscow as the third Rome and him challenging exactly. Catholicism totally. and leveraging the kind of because I think it's very this, for me this is a big blind spot is that the financial markets are generally disinterested in religion and in, in anything that is irrational mm. um, whereas I think religion has been repressed under the secular kind of market led um, you know Few, last few decades, mm. but it, it's coming back in a big way because there is something very uh, as rational as you might want to be. Even Richard Dawkins ends up, in my opinion, even he sometimes demonstrates religious thinking in yeah. his zealotism about being an atheist. Yes, I hear so, you. He's like created a religion yeah, of atheism. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So it's, it's not so much what you believe, it's how you operate within yeah. a belief structure and, and how forceful you are about that belief, right? And so I think uh, religion is coming back in a big way and, and certainly the Christian sort of mentality um, is being leveraged by Putin who has this Moscow's the third Rome coming to save the world from yes. the e evil and you've seen the shifting in the dialogue mm. he was fighting the Nazis but now he's fighting the Satanists that's right it did just shift recently yeah and mm. and this this and the Satanist aligns with the occult thinking yeah, but he sees himself as the, I guess, the angelic force because yes. it's the enemy that's the Satan, Satanist yes. side of things. So here we go is that this, this complexity of the situation, but, but just to make the key point, I think in the end we won't end up with a nuclear event and partly because she is coming in and saying to the barking dog, no. Right. Every time he actually comes out and says we may use nukes, she comes straight out and says uh -huh. truce or let's not, let's negotiate. So that's so step one on positive outcomes. We don't end up there. Also, why is it that there is this huge race for space? Why are we fighting over space? I've spent some time now really digging into this what I call the space space mm. from an investor point of view and what I've realized is here's what they're racing for it's not just who controls the highest altitudes it's the genuine belief that we are very close to being able to generate space-based solar power which is when oh, you put mirrors well on amazing. satellites uh -huh. you beam the power to earth in the form of apparently radio waves and you have cheap ubiquitous power that totally displaces hydrocarbons boom and i i've talked to the well, guys that that building the prototypes a game changer it's a game changer because it's also not intermittent in the same way no this is like knowing just before the saudis hit oil for the first time and like the whole world is about to change mm. so that's one and notice the chinese have said they're building the mirror arrays for space-based solar power nasa is racing for it the russians have said we're doing the same so there is a race to see who is going to do this first and i'd say we're less than five years away the, and how does that change everything well you tell me you you make power not scarce but ubiquitous the whole world economy will change because well that makes that that also ups the rationale for putin because if yes, if putin does. is is aware that the fossil fuel it's not about climate change for the moment if yes. without this solar thing we are just nowhere near transition right Correct. um 
But if we have this technology, then in any transition, some some place like Russia would completely have no purpose. I mean, economically, and and, and be incredibly vulnerable. So guess why Saudi is backing lots of space ventures because mm. they know that, and the Norwegians as well. They and why is the UAE emerging as a major center for space exploration? Hello, this yeah. is why. So that's number one. Number two that's is very ubiquitous, cheap, satellite-based internet connectivity globally, mm -hmm. which is only just starting. And that lifts Starlink and yeah, yeah, yeah. But it'll be even more sophisticated. And I do think the laser connections between satellites are about to happen as well. So that means super fast. You could put yourself anywhere in the world and have world-class internet connectivity that will lift the value of every location on the planet. Mm. It also is important for monitoring Earth. So you can begin, I call it space-based solutions to Earth-bound problems. You can begin to protect Earth much more if you have this global Wi-Fi connectivity that lets you see where bad stuff is happening. Mm. And then third, the super controversial one that everyone laughs at is asteroid mining. Mm. But asteroid mining is now a thing. So they found this asteroid called Bennu in 2019. By 2021, NASA had the samples back and realized this thing is worth more than most nations. And it has everything you need to make an iPhone. Mm. And so recently you saw the headline that NASA was putting, it was basically blasting an asteroid and the headline was to save Earth. But the actual real story is if you can break these up into smaller pieces, you can mine them and harvest them. Mm. And now you don't have to rip Earth up to get your cobalt and your lithium anymore. You can get it out of space. Now you put these three together, it suddenly makes sense. Why are the superpowers racing for who's going to put the first base on the moon. And just to finish on this, because people have not paid attention to Artemis and the Starship. Artemis is the NASA project to put humans on the moon, not to step on the moon, but to stay there and to build there and to build launch pads from there. Mm. And Starship, which is a SpaceX project, is literally a hundred ton payload. It's a truck mm -hmm. and its purpose is to take stuff up so we can build and to bring things back, including manufacturing that will be done in space. Hmm. Oh, none of this is sci-fi anymore, but most people haven't been paying attention. So when you talk about it, they're like, this is ridiculous. This must be 25 years away. It isn't. It's all in motion with the top course, scientists for each of these countries right that now. That would explain Elon's rush to make droids because yes, that's because less that's about how being. They're going to do it on the moon. And this is very Blade Robotics. Runner. <laughs> it's very Blade Runner. It's very fascinating. But it makes more sense than like everyone having a personal droid in their, you know, in their house. That never made sense to me. But having a something, you know, something that doesn't live and breathe operating on the moon yeah. would make a lot of, a lot of sense. So that's why when I say, yes, we're in World War III, many nations are involved in conflicts that are driven by the, mm. by the contest between the superpowers. What are they really fighting over? They are fighting over the next frontier, which is where we're going to have unlimited energy, unlimited Wi-Fi connectivity and unlimited resources. But surely unlimited energy should make things less less rivalrous. I agree, it should. Um, in fact, I would go so far as to say, what happens to capitalism? 
Yeah. Because it 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 operates on scarcity. That's what causes prices to form. What happens if you have ubiquity? Like it's it'll mess capitalism up. Well, I think it it, it then supports the transition into an information economy, right? Yeah. So. Because at the moment, I've always thought that is a bit of a far-fetched, um, you know, projection based on the fact that we still need material. We we still are bound by scarcity on the ground. But if you get unlimited energy, then in theory, that changes that dynamic a little bit. I think at the bare minimum, the things I'm talking about are worth paying attention to. Mm. And one of the problems, back to what's reported and what do you see or... But this is, this is the inflection point that we even make it to that transition and then we can sustain growth for the next, you know, dec- well, century exactly. or whatever. Or we blow ourselves up before we get there. And so it is sort of a critical path moment. Mm. Uh, and, and we've been describing it as, you know, we're at a once in a species moment. This move into space is humanity's first time that we're not just stepping mm. we're staying i even met the guy as a danish architect who's built the habitats that are already going to go up in the starship and in artemis right like this again it's it's all live so that's why i say there's good news out of this argument that we're in right now mm. but right now people don't even understand the reality of where we are in this moment the mm. minute they start to realize they start being frightened oh my god we are in world war three and i'm already like yeah but it's going to be okay because all these other things are true so i'm not worried and i think world war three will not be like world war one where many lives were lost in the trenches I, although of course in ukraine they've lost so many lives unnecessarily but there we are um it's not like world war two where it was an air power mm. battle this is a space power open open environment and i would include the oceans in that maybe one of the reasons people can't follow it is they're used to army-based conflicts and this is more naval this is ocean-based again where nobody's there to see what's happening Mm. so anyway i'm fundamentally positive and i also think the war we're in because oil prices have gone up and energy prices have gone up and food prices have gone up this has given a huge impetus to innovation. We're going to see new discoveries at a much faster pace. And that raises the probability that some of this will actually succeed. Mm. I guess the only, I mean, it's good to be positive. I mean, the free energy thing changes things significantly, but it doesn't necessarily create abundance if there are specific powers and control of that. Oh, I agree. And so multipolarity is preferable to keep everyone in check, right? So you don't just have dependence on one um, one major power for for infinite. This is why there's a race. Yeah, yeah. And that's why you literally see the headlines if you start looking for it. I was trying to say before, be very careful because the algorithms will only show you what you click on. Mm. If you click on, if you've never clicked on anything with space, you're going to miss this whole thing. Yeah, so you yeah. click on a few things, and then suddenly you'll see it, it in your newsfeed. But this is why there, there's this huge race to who will build the first base on the moon. It's a big blind spot, that's for sure. Mm. So we're running out of time because we've got to get to our secret yes. meeting. <laughs> but <laughs> before before um, before we go, I think we've got five minutes. I did want to ask so. Because I am, I do have this um, interest in Goss plan. Yes. Do you, 
do you, you know so your your dad what was he he got to visit the gloss plan and what's his general view on well so it's so interesting so when nixon sent kissinger to beijing to mm-hmm. open the dialogue with the chinese communists mm-hmm. he sent my dad to moscow to open the dialogue with the russian communists mm. so this was in the very early 1970s and um my dad was very very quiet about mm. it it was a super secret um and uh, I used to get postcards from Geneva. And in retrospect, I'm like, wait a minute, was mm-hmm. my dad actually in Geneva? I don't think he was in Geneva. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and he has these wonderful stories to tell about what happened in the course of those conversations. But he got a phone call from the head of Gosplan. I can't mm-hmm. remember his name. He was like the head of it for 30 years or mm-hmm. something ridiculous. And he came over. My dad was like, oh, my God. So he went to have dinner with the head of Gosplan with the approval of the U.S. government. And so it was this big room with a huge table, and the head of Gosplan said to my dad, what do you think about the condition of my economy? And my dad, being a very young man at the time, he was only in his late 20s, early 30s, he was like, uh, well, I would you know, defer to you, sir, as the head of Gosplan, that you probably know your economy better than I know your economy. And the head of Gosplan says, I've read your file, for such a bright person, you're really dumb. <laughs> My dad's like, shit. <laughs> he says, everyone lies to me. Mm. Because we at Gosplan, we give out orders. You must produce this much yeah. steel. But we don't send them the materials required to make the steel. Because mm. we know they can't make it. Mm. But they write back and say, yes, we've built all the steel that you requested. Because they know that if they don't, then we send them to Siberia. Yeah. So in the Gosplan system... Everybody lies. So I need you. You're an American. I need you to tell me what's happening in my economy. (laughs) And so then my dad's like, okay, I get it now. Right. Okay. And that began a dialogue. And when that dialogue, the head of Gosplan at one point said to my dad, you know that what's happened to us is going to happen to you. Mm. My dad's like, "What? what? He said, your bank's your banks in particular are going to become so large that everyone will lie that they will be it's back to the greenspan point they will become too big to manage yeah and things will start to happen that are very bad and will impact on your society he literally predicted where we ended up with the Mm. banks needing to be bailed out but it was based on this notion that if you create institutions where people are heavily penalized if they tell the truth mm. and and rewarded if they lie well boom then all the incentives are wrong all the incentives are yeah. wrong so it's just fascinating the gospel plan stories my dad has well perhaps we can do this again another time and we can hear more about them but yes. for now we've got to finish sadly but <laughs> thank you for joining me in my hotel room oh, for a light lunch for this. <laughs> it was really fascinating fascinating and um, yeah thank you very much Pippa thank you <laughs> that was Leaked Lunch with Isabella Kaminska for more on how finance and media intersect with reality check out the-blindspot.com